0: It was first published in 1851 and written by Herman Melville. It follows the story of a gentleman named Ishmael and his journey on capturing Moby Dick. If you're enjoying the podcast, that's great. I bring it to all listeners free everywhere to help you get a good night's rest. I do need your help, though, because my mission is to reach people everywhere that need to get a good night's rest. Please subscribe to the podcast in the podcast app that you're listening on. And if you can, also leave a comment and a rating. That's all. Now all you have to do is lie back and enjoy the readings. Moby Dick, Chapter 1 Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos gets such an upper hand of me, that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to the sea as soon as I can, this is my substitute for pistol and ball with a philosophical flourish Cato throws himself upon his sword, I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. There now is your insular city, of the Manhattos, belted round by wharves as Indian Isles by coral reefs, commerce surrounds it with her surf, right and left the streets take you waterward, its extreme downtown is the Battery, where the noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of the water gazers there. Circumambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Collier's Hook to County Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? hosted like silent sentinels all around the town, stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries, some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon their pier heads, some looking over the bulwark's glasses, some higher aloft in the rigging, as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen, of weekdays pent up in lath and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? What do they have here? But look, here come more crowds pacing straight for the water, and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange, nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can, without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues. Inlanders all, they come from the lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnificent virtue of the needles of the compass of all those ships attract them tither. Once more, say you are in the country, in some high land of lakes, take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is magic in it, let those most absent-minded of men be plunged in this deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallible lead you to water. If water there is at all a religion... Should you ever be artist in the great American desert, try this experiment, if your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor. Yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever, but here is an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the valley of Saco, What is the chief element he employs? There stand his trees, each with a hollow trunk as if a permit and crucifix were within. And here sleeps his meadow, and there sleep his cattle, and up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though his pine tree shakes down its size like leaves upon this shepherd's head, yet all were in vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him go visit the prairies in June when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee-deep besides tiger lilies what is the one charm wanting? water There is not a drop of water here. Were Niagara but a cataract of sand, Would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, Upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, Deliberate whether to buy him a coat, Which he sadly needed or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why upon your first voyage as a passenger... Did yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning. ...and still deeper... ...the meaning of that story of Narcissus... ...who because he could not grasp the tormenting... ...mild image he saw in the fountain... ...plunged into it and was drowned... ...but that same image... ...we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans... ...it is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. Now, when I say that I am in the habit of going to sea, whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be over-conscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I have ever to go to sea as a passenger. For to go to sea as a passenger, you must have the needs of a purse. And a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep of nights, do not enjoy themselves much as a general thing, no, I never go as a passenger, nor, though, I am something of a salt, do I ever go to the sea as a commodore, or a captain, or a cook. I abandon the glory and distinction of such offices to those who like them. For my part, I abdominate all honourable, respectable toils, trials and tribulations of every kind whatsoever. It is quite as much as I can do to take care of myself Without taking care of ships, barks, brigs, schooners, and what not. And as for going as cook, though I confess there is considerable glory in that, a cook being a sort of officer on shipboard, yet somehow. I never fancied broiling fowls. Though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted and peppered, there is no one who will speak more respectfully, not to say reverentially, of a broiled fowl than I will. It is out of the idolatrous dotings of the old Egyptians. Upon broiled ibis and roasted river horse, that you can see the mummies of those creatures in their huge bake houses, the pyramids. no, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle, aloft there to the royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some, and make me jump from spar to spar, like a grasshopper in a May meadow. And at first, this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. It touches one's sense of honour, particularly if you come of an old established family in the land. The Van Wrestlers or Randolphs, or Harder and more than all, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, you have been lording it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boy stand in awe of you. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decotation of Seneca and Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it, but even this wears off in time. What of it? if some old hunks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks what does that indignity amount to? Weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me? because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunks in that particular instance. Who is not a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that that it is alright, that everybody else is one way or another, served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is, and so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Again, I always go to the sea as a sailor because they make a point of paying me for my trouble whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay and there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid the act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two awkward thieves entailed upon us but being paid what will that compare with the urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvellous considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven, ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Finally, I always go to sea, as a sailor, because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern, so for the most part, the commodore of the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes at first, but not so. In much the same way does the commonality lead their leaders in many other things, at the same time that the leaders little suspect it. But wherefore, it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage This the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me, and secretly dogs me, and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better understand that than anyone else. And, doubtless, my going on this wailing voyage formed part of the grand program of Providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this Grand Constanted Election for the Presidency of the United States. Wailing Voyage by Ishmael. Bloody Battle in Afghanistan. Though I cannot tell why, it was exactly that those state managers, the Fates, put me down for this shabby part of a wailing voyage when others were set down for magnificent parts in high tragedies, and short and easy parts in genteel comedies, and jolly parts in farces. Though I cannot tell you why this was exactly, yet now I recall all the circumstances. I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part that I did, besides conjoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. Then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island bulk, the undeliverable nameless perils of the whale. These with all the attending marvels, of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds, helped to sway me with my wish. With other men, perhaps, such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good. I am quick to perceive a horror, and still I could be social sure with it, would they let me? Since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of the place one lodges in. By reason of these things, then, the wailing voyage was welcome the great floodgates of the wonder-world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul endless processions of the whale, and midmost of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air, I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm and started for Cape Horn and the Pacific. Quitting the good city of old Manhattan, I duly arrived in New Bedford. It was on a Saturday night in December, much was I disappointed upon learning that the little packet for Nantucket was already sailed and that no way of reaching that place would offer till the following Monday. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this time, the same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage It may as well be related that I, for one, had no idea of doing so, for my mind was made up to sail in no other than a Nantucket craft, because there was a fine, boisterous, something about everything connected with that famous old island which amazingly pleased me. Besides, though, New Bedford has of late been gradually monopolising the business of whaling. And though in this matter poor old Nantucket is now much behind her, yet Nantucket was her great original. The tyre of this Carthage, the place where the first dead American whale was stranded Where else but from Nantucket did those Aboriginal whalemen, the Red Men, first sally out in canoes to give chase to the Leviathan? And where but from Nantucket, too, did that first adventurous little sloop put forth, partly laden with imported cobblestones? So goes the story to throw at the whales, in order to discover when they were nigh enough to risk a harpoon from the bow spirit. Now having a night, a day, and still another night following before me in New Bedford, ere I could embark for my destined port, it became a matter of concertment where I was to eat and sleep, meanwhile. And that concludes tonight's episode. I hope it's helped you feel a little sleepy. If you're still looking to get sleepy, then please listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you more episodes. And in the meantime, rest easy and good night.